welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. Today I'm going to be speaking with Bill Torbett. This is a response to a podcast I put out a few months ago with Dave Snowden. And that podcast we were exploring Dave's critiques of how we hold the notion of mindsets and adult development theory or vertical development. And so Bill and his associate Elaine Herdman Barker wrote a short response to that podcast. And so I read that and I thought, oh, let's get Bill on and we'll talk about uh, that. We'll talk about some of his responses to Dave's critiques of vertical development. So the main critiques that Bill will respond to are that vertical development theory can be wielded in an elitist hierarchical fashion, that it's too individualistic and lacking context, Uh, it's too linear that they are treated in a way that's too simplistic, they become stereotypes and close down the emergent of novel and pluralistic forms of of thinking and and cognition. And I really appreciate where we end up in this podcast. We end up talking about love and Bill's health and death and Bill's relationship to death. And I think it's really beautiful. So highly recommend you listen to this one all the way through. A few more words about Bill. He is a thought leader in adult development and leadership. He's generated the the global leadership profile for measuring a person's current leadership capacities. He's the author of several books, including Seven Transformations of Leadership, Action Inquiry, and his most recent book, Numbskull, The Theatre of Inquiry. He taught leadership at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and at the Carroll Graduate School of Management at Boston College. And his intent is to leave a legacy of persons capable of practicing collaborative developmental action inquiry. I'd also like to take a moment to tell you about our online coach training program called The Power of Embodied Transformation. It's all about how do we descend beneath purely working with the mind and access a wisdom beyond thought. So you'll learn how to use the body as a gateway into your client's world, how to recognize conditioned patterns in your clients as they arise, and how do you design embodied practices for your clients so they can embody these lasting changes they want to make. So if you want to find out more about that program, you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation. And enrollment is open until the 2nd of March this year, 2023. Okay, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Bill Torbett. Okay, so, um, well, Bill Torbett, yeah, it's great to see you again. Uh, we, we actually, um, you actually um, taught a session in a Coaches Rising program quite a number of years ago. So it's really, it's really great to reconnect with you. And um, yeah, you know, I just want to share how much I've appreciated your work over the years as well. Uh, so how are you today? Uh, I'm just fine, thank you, and uh, uh, very happy to be here with you and uh, the people who will be listening to this. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. We have this conversation because of uh, a podcast we put out a few months ago with Dave Snowden, where he was critiquing uh, mindsets and developmental theory, the way that some people hold that and uh, what I really liked was that you and someone else co-authored a, a short paper responding to some of his critiques. 
And so I thought, oh, well, well let's get De- uh, Bill back on the podcast and uh, he can we can have a conversation about that and expand on some of these points. So that's what we'll do today. So so why don't we do that? Let's move through some of these. Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing that you wrote about uh, and, and that Dave spoke about was how developmental theory can be wielded in a kind of elitist hierarchical fashion you know and he's even said um you know if i look here that it can actually you know um kind of have stress on people you know it's highly evaluative and can even create stress on people when they they uh, receive you know a kind of a diagnosis of what stage they're at um and i'm just curious for you how you feel about that critique basically like what comes up for you yeah. mm. Well, it is um, very easy uh, to make uh, developmental theory an elitist enterprise and a put-me-above-you enterprise, uh, I'm better than you are, um, if one uh, is treating developmental theory as an answer which one uses to categorize other people. Uh, It's possible to use it that way, obviously, because some people do. It's also possible to use it that way in a kind of scientific testing way where you're making a kind of hypothesis about the other person's developmental action logic in order to be able to, uh, well, either communicate better with that person and discover with that person what the next steps in growth are for each of you, or it can be used as a way of putting a person down. Um, and uh, people at the earlier action logics uh, will use it that way and will uh, want to um, hurry as fast as they can up to the later action logics, uh, imagining it as a kind of mental enterprise, uh, whereas in fact development, uh, at least in the theories that we use, um, is a holistic person development and requires emotional development and practical development, um, as well as a kind of greater intellectual complexity. Uh, So, um, you know, he's launching a critique that everybody that's involved seriously with developmental theory and practice um, has to take in and and apply to oneself. Is, Is one just talking theory and considering that a conversation about development? Um, uh, you know, and to what extent am I entering situations with conclusions about people and the setting, as opposed to questions about them? How to approach the situation uh, in an inquiring uh, mode um, is a skill that, you know, one has to learn. And it's easy to become uh Uh, it's easy to become uneasy in a situation and want to assert oneself to show that uh, one is a a lead participant in this situation, a lead interpreter of what's going on. Uh, But as I've often pointed out, um, the developmental process moves from a tendency to want to use power unilaterally in a situation which is part of this, I know what's going on and I know better than you. Um, Actually, it's the early stages, opportunist, diplomat, uh, expert, 
that are the most unilateral. And uh, they, they assume that their worldview is the way the world is and that um, uh, using that power is unilateral uh, by nature, that there is no such thing. It never occurs to most people that there might be something called mutual power. That that seems like a contradiction in, in terms. Um, and uh, in fact, toward the later stages, one is uh, wishing to become more and more mutual um, with whatever one's engagement is, because it's only through mutuality that people gain trust in one another. Um, and therefore, only under conditions of mutuality that we're going to really reveal ourselves to one another and be be vulnerable about where our growth may lie. Um, so uh, the it's only people had early action logics that treat developmental theory as uh, uh, as though it is an elitist enterprise. And um, I guess I'll stop there for a second and let you let you push me one way or another. Yeah, great. Do you, do you think it might be easy? to fall into the kind of subtle trap of, um, you know, um, that kind of power, because it, it I think, uh, I, and again, I want to be careful not speaking for Dave too much because, um, you know, uh, I'm, I've only read some of his critiques, but, uh, and I, th I think one of the things they're saying is that a lot of coaches are kind of, saying, hey, I've got this theory and it can, um, you know, it's it's like, I'm going to show you where you need to go. You know, I'm going to tell you where you're at and I'm going to show you where you need to go. And that it seems that maybe some coaches doing that are still not at those lower action logics. Maybe they are. I don't know. Do you think, I, I guess my point is, do you think it's still easy uh, for people to fall into that trap of of playing that game, even when they might be in some of the mature, more mature action logics? Well, yes. Uh, first of all, um, up until very recently, power itself has been defined by social scientists, um, as well as by most power possessors, as being unilateral. The the you know when you uh, when you ask um, how can you demonstrate power, people say, well, if A can get B to move to C, even though B doesn't want it, then A has power over B, um, that, which is a strictly unilateral way of understanding power. So it's, it's, it's so uh, common in our entire culture um, and uh, the sort of Hobbesian notion of how we need, how the king has to have absolute a power or otherwise there will be civil war and disorganization is still the theory that guides most international uh, thinking about how nations relate to one another. Um, and so, you know, it is very easy for everyone to move into that, um, that purely uh, coercive view of power, but even the next kind of power, diplomatic power, which I call charming power, which has a whole different feel to it, but it's still unilateral and uh, in its nature, it's still trying to manipulate the other person um, into doing something that's for my good. And same thing with expert, you know, we talk about hard power, soft power, 
uh, logistical power, smart power, we say smart power. Now we've been able to distinguish opportunist, diplomat, and expert types of power, but they're all unilateral in nature. The expert is trying to get the right answer and to persuade you of what the right answer is. So yes, it's very easy to fall into that mode, especially for intellectuals who um, are used to trying to win arguments. And that means you're sort of sumo wrestling, pushing each other around. Um, uh, so, uh, and I think also one could say that in most cases, um, power is sort of the last quality that gets transformed to a later stage. So you might be at a later action logic in all sorts of ways, but when it comes down to a situation in which um, uh, there's a power concern, you're, you're more likely to lag in in the action logic you're using uh, than you might be um, if the topic is, or the concern is love. Um, well, the word love implies mutuality, but there's still lots of love that's done at the early stages that's not mutual, um, you know. Um, you're gonna like this, uh, whether you like it or not. Um, uh, I love you. You've got to do what I want to do. Um, and uh, But the word itself has a connotation of mutuality, which the word power doesn't necessarily have. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if um, I might be wrong, but a form of that power, you know, the, um, and I think Dave speaks about this too, but you, you mentioned it, you know, uh, it's actually in, uh, better to inquire rather than kind of perhaps judge or place a, you know, a, a definition over someone. And, you know, maybe that's one of the critiques too, that like people hold these in a simplistic way, you know, like it's, it's um, and it's a prescriptive judgment of a mindset of how someone should be, which doesn't perhaps allow for uh, a kind of novelty or plural pluralistic kind of um, set of beliefs and thoughts to mm -hmm. to emerge, you know. So I guess I'm mixing up a few things here, but you know, what what do you think about like could you say more about that tendency that people might have to fall into of like simplistically applying these descriptions of stages to people as opposed to how they could hold it in a more inquiry based? Well. Um... You know, first of all, I think an important thing to say here is that um, the whole way of using developmental theory that is in effect being talked about in this kind of question uh, is a third person notion. Can, can I find an authoritative judgment of your action logic or of my action logic? And as long as it's approached from a third person point of view, it's going to have a tendency to uh, apply labels to people and be um, uh, not very um, uh, fluid. Um, but you know, when we when we um, ask people or they ask us to be able to fill out uh, the global leadership profile, um, the presumption is that there's an interest in personal development on their part and on our part as coaches. Um, 
And so we asked people to make their own estimate of their developmental stage, which we treat as equally significant as the third person analysis of the test. And then we suggest that people ought to do some debriefing with a coach. And in the case of the debriefing, if there's a difference between the first person and the third person um, estimates of a person's action logic, uh, the coach can use the behavior that occurs during the coaching session um, as a second person way of working with the person. So um, uh, you try to triangulate uh, among the first, second, and third person uh, estimates. But in the meantime, you're also, you're, you're depending on where the uh, client is, um, you're, um, sorry, I, I, I've reached an age where I drop things <laughs> in the middle of a sentence. Um, mm. um, the the effort in development becomes to see um you know in what circumstances uh might i try uh, an expert form of power in what circumstances might i try a redefining type of power um so it's the, and the first person is trying to look at themselves also in the midst of action not just look at other people um and so to what degree uh, am I actually still connected to your question uh, or have I gone off on my own into my own world here for a minute um, and lost lost contact? So that's uh, I think th that way of thinking about measuring uh, an action logic is helpful uh, to not have it be something that's just applied by someone to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and the, I, I hear you kind of, I mean, maybe this is good to bring in the the critique about um, maybe that these developmental theories are too individualistic uh, and, and it maybe doesn't include context, you know, and in one of Dave's papers, he writes about 4E cognition as well, you know, that our kind of cognition is embedded and uh, embodied and enacted and so on. Um, and, and, you know, you can see how these critiques weave together because that maybe it's also good to bring in here the critique of also that uh, are these are these things models seen as being too linear, you know, like that each stage mm. unfolds in a linear way. Um, but, yeah, maybe we take that first one of like, yeah, that um, how do we define what the individual is? Uh, do we a lot of people hold the models uh, as you know, focusing wholly on the individual, and then something's lost. Uh, yeah, how do you, how do you? Well, um, yeah. um, I like to start at the point of saying, um, well, the theory itself um, says that as we move toward later action logics, we pay more and more attention to the context that we're in. We don't want to act in a general way. We want to act in a way that is sensitive to these other persons I'm with right now, and that mm -hmm. and the context of the organizing process that we're embedded in as we talk. Um, so, you know, in my case, the individual level theory is complemented by a parallel organizational development theory, and indeed, another parallel scientific development theory. So um, it is very concerned 
as e equally concerned with the collective as it is with the uh, individual. Uh, so it's true that the the GLP, the measure, is a measure of an individual. We don't. I spent years trying to develop a usable measure of corporate development. I have the theory, and it quite specifically describes the activities at each stage on a, a corporate level. Um, but it is very difficult to develop a measure of that because everybody who will be asked to uh, rate the organization or categorize the organization will be members of the organization or people that are close enough to know something about the corporation, and they all have their individual action logic. So you're going to get a mishmash you're not going to necessarily get a clear view of the organization uh, from the individual's perspective. Um, you know, people at earlier levels of a large organization are their their group or unit may have an action logic, which is quite different from the corporation as a whole. And their members, however, if they're asked about the corporation, they see it through the experiences they have in their own unit. So that has been, you know, um, a difficult problem. We've been able to get um, expert raters who know the theory well and have been involved in consulting to organizations at different stages. We can get a group of three raters to um, score the action logic of the organization in a highly reliable way that we can use uh, in our empirical studies to show that leaders at the later action logics, in fact, are better at helping an organization as a whole transform. So uh, that, and that of course is itself one example of how um, the theory doesn't just focus on the individual. Um, so I, that's that's at least the beginning of yeah. response you, and, to the first question. Yeah, um, and, and, and therefore, um, it, do, you, do you think then, yeah, context dependent, it could be, you know, holding the notion that someone's at a particular stage of development um, is a good way to think about it. Or is it like, yeah, you know, um, going through your day in different contexts, certain particular, um, you know, ways of seeing and being in the world may come to the forefront, you know, so that there's a variation, a variable, it's much more nuanced and, you know, I mean, again, I don't know if you remember Dave speaking about this idea of, he said, oh, I like to see them as modulators, that these stage, I think he says these stage descriptions are, yeah, they're valid, they're useful, uh, and actually important and empowering, but I see them as modulators of experience rather than stages of, of development. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's a sort of empirical and experiential um, study uh, to determine whether there is a sense in which they unfold um, uh, systematically in a predictable way uh, or um, or not. Um, but it isn't the only thing that's going on in developmental theories. And, and first of all, it's sort of odd to call it, a, I, one understands why it's called a linear progression, because it's especially at the beginning, people presented as a 
stair a set of stairs up to heaven um and you climb up the stairs and you reach heaven at the end of it um and you know we've all of us who are in the field or at least many of us have been working like hell to get rid of that staircase version of the theory um because of course there's a, each change from one action logic to another is anything but a linear process it's a process where your your sense of linearity gets gets challenged seriously um and what made sense before no longer makes the same kind of sense and one has to really um explore one can get stuck in between stages um for long periods of time depending on one's life circumstances not just at the stages but in between the stages um and again at the at the later uh action logics one um shows more capability of seeing the fluidity that you were talking about in one's day for example i mean i think in the in the end the movement is beyond an intellectual cognition of what's going on to a post-cognitive consciousness of what you're actually doing um minute in minute out um and uh, and you develop a a practice which um isn't rooted in the mind so much as it is in uh in looking at the conversation between you and the outer world you're dealing with at the moment and one does see um that one one uses different action logics at different times of day i mean i i drive in a highly diplomatic way i very rarely go to the other side of the road to drive um out of a feeling of freedom and so forth no it's you need diplomatic rules uh in order to make traffic move um and uh sometimes i become an opportunist and when i'm driving um and try to cut across a line that's stopped there in the right hand lane why can't i get another mile ahead and then merge into that line before the exit um i'm pretty good at that um so there are moments when one acts as an opportunist and one, i i seem to not regret my opportunist moments too much uh, maybe someday i i will learn to regret it because i get some some penalty for it um i have i have had to pay a few traffic tickets in my time uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh so but you know that's how one days ago i mean i spent a lot of my time in expert still at this age writing little papers and um you know responding to people helping people with their dissertations and um sitting here at the computer in that manner uh so um it is a a variable thing and one of the capacities if one has this sort of post cognitive awareness is to tell to say whoa 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 you're you're off balance here you're pushing something too hard there's you're not getting a response um you need to try something new uh, maybe really new uh and in my um numbskull in the theater of inquiry book that came out a couple of years ago um i demonstrate just how much of a numbskull i have been um because very often i have misread the situation at first and done something that got me walloped um in one sense or another uh usually i gradually learn from that situation and 
get back in the saddle again. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's hard to know. Um, it's hard to be mm-hmm. right all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we try, we try. I mean, I mean, uh, what you're speaking to perhaps does fit with, again, you know, another um, critique I've heard, and we're kind of speaking about it where it's like, um, you know, it can, can become prescriptive a mindset idea like if you know if this then do that do this then do that then do this and when i hear you talk about this post-cognitive uh, awareness it's like um it's kind of mediating and and um it's checking in isn't it it's like oh um like what what's happening now and what's wanting to emerge you know um I, like it's it's evaluating like is there a, is there the optimum fit between kind of the inner and outer I don't know quite know how to phrase it but and that seems perhaps more aligned again you know forgive me Dave if I'm misrepresenting your views I'm trying to I'm trying to be the voice of Dave here a little bit he's a bright guy too so but um you know it's more like um you know th- this then check you know then that then check it's a different yeah right 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 well as I said in my paper I agree with with Dave on on that um to put it in a kind of more um formal way uh from the beginning of of uh, my academic life um i've worked with a notion that you've probably seen if you've seen any of my writing uh, of the four territories of experience um which you know i say that you know everybody is concerned with on what is the basic basic matter of the world um and you know most most scientists nowadays say it's the material outside world that's what's really real and uh some other people say no it's the mind that's really real and it sort of constructs the world um for us um and i say well they're both real not only that there's an element in between the outside world and my thought which is my practice which is my bodily movement my embodied uh practice which most of us don't pay much attention to that is the paying attention to what you're doing from moment to moment um and uh then in addition to mind beyond mind so to speak is this post-cognitive awareness which you don't get uh for free you actually have to to find it and allow it to develop as a as as a capacity within yourself um which requires in a sense constant practice uh anytime i check in i tend not to be aware of all four of those territories at once so what does it mean to come back in contact with them and then and use that process to check uh, to what degree i'm actually responding to the outside world and am in a good dance with it uh right now a good conversation with it um so uh yes it's not just a cognitive check-in uh it's a <laughs> whole system check-in um and w- one is seeking a kind of congruity ultimately among those four layers both in oneself um and in s- political and organizational situations one is engaged with um so you know i think i just what springs to mind is a moment that occurred years ago um our department 
was meeting with the academic vice president uh, because uh, he and other people uh, had said we were going to get money for a PhD program. They'd already given money to the finance department, um, and they had said at the same time they would give us money. Well, the finance department was making more money for the university, and um, we suspected that that was why uh, the finance department came first. And the vice president had already said once or twice, well, not this year in the budget, but next year, and it hadn't happened. So we met with him, and once again at the end of the meeting, he said, um, well, next year uh, you'll uh, we'll be able to make a budget. And uh, everybody seemed inclined to just nod and accept this. Um, but I said, well, look, you know, you've said this several times, and it feels like there's more at stake now. I would really like to have a handshake on the matter. Um, will will you uh, do this next year? And he shook my hand. Um, and we did get the PhD program the next year. So there was a, a moment there where I was sort of trying to check the situation, the context, and were we likely to get the program if we just nodded our approval, or did it require a kind of confrontation to, to shake him out of the easy place he was in? Um, now, I don't know if that's a very good example, but it, it, um, you know, I certainly didn't plan to do that in advance. It, it arose out of the uh, immediacy of how uh, people were acting in the situation yeah yeah and i i think it again it fits with you know thinkings around um you know complex systems and emergence that yeah in the moment you were able to um kind of check what what's happening here and in alignment with what's important to you and and then a, a next action arose you know like or, or a you know uh a test you know you were testing something out like what if what if i shake his hand and um right, right. i mean it might have gone wrong of course he might, he might yeah. say how dare you you know my word is my word and um get him out of here you guys i mean that, that was a, yeah. yeah i think that also fits with you know a critique i've heard around you know some types of coaching I mean, maybe this doesn't quite fit, but I'm fitting it together of like close the gap coaching, you know, which can also, I think, happen in developmental theory where, uh, you know, you you kind of maybe get assessed and this is where you are. And then you kind of have an idea of where I want to go. And there's a kind of effort to make it to that place. You know, some kind of plan is created. And, um, you know, that, well, actually, how is that, again, overly simplistic? And, uh proposed by other people it's more like again starting where you are in the moment and there's certain um enabling constraints and catalysts of of someone's uh development that emerges and there's a more kind of organic natural perhaps uh process involved than you know one that's like overly layered onto prescriptive and perhaps simplistic does that make sense well, right. And one certainly has to be on the lookout for that all, all the time. And one has to um, be on the lookout for those elements of the client's engagement and response that indicate whether uh, such and such a possible path that the coach opens up or presents um, is really uh, finding a resonance with the client. I mean, 
if if the client is just accepting um, the advice uh, in a passive way, um, that you know seems dangerous for the likelihood that the client will go very far in making that major move from one uh, action logic to another. But I mean, it definitely is necessary once you get beyond achiever, you get movement beyond achiever. Uh, the you know the main action logic societal action logic is orange achiever still in this age and so the societal norms support development up to achiever to a certain degree and more for some people than others um, reaching the achiever action logic is a significant accomplishment still um, in the society um, but then moving to redefining or transforming or alchemical, all of that is moving against the, the social um, climate and norm. Um, now, we've seen in the last 20, 25 years, there is a, a significant movement toward redefining because national and familial and all the norms in smaller uh, settings are being challenged by the, the globalization of everything, um, and nobody's action logic uh, is quite as sacred as before. Iranian teenage girls risking death to not wear their headscarves. I mean, there's a redefining movement uh, in, 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 you know, very striking terms. Uh, so um, you it is helpful to have planning support from a coach about how to how to move from one to the next, but it has to be subtle. It, it has to um, connect with the person's real motivation uh, or otherwise they'll just drop it. And it's important to create uh, an, a new um, sort of parallel environment to their everyday life, um, which may be a small group of colleagues who are working together on a bi-weekly or monthly evening meeting uh, to face up to the challenges they have, they each have in their um, corporate setting, let's say, if assuming they are in a corporate setting, um, uh, what, what, how can they take the difficult um, situations they encounter and handle them better? And to what degree does uh, thinking about it at the next stage of development help them imagine uh, an action which, you know, isn't so risky that they won't in fact take it when the time comes, um, uh, but is will inevitably be risky because it'll be based on a, a scenario that they don't na naturally uh, generate right yet. Uh, and yeah, a terrible time uh, expressing anger. Um, and, and having grown up in a house where my father was a diplomat, literally, um, <laughs> he always thought that maybe I had named the uh, action logic after him. And I tried to persuade him that he was uh, beyond that action logic, uh, even if his profession was diplomacy. Um, but ne neither of my parents was conflict um well they were both conflict averse let's say i never saw a fight between them uh in my entire youthful life so i learned how not to conflict um and 
uh, and it happened seemed to have to happen by my uh, sub submerging uh, times when I might be angry. Even if I did get angry, I would get over the anger very quickly um, and not mm. necessarily hold the other person to account. Uh, so I literally had to, um, uh, a friend said, um, if nothing you've tried has worked, try the last thing in the world you would think of doing in this situation, which sounded crazy, but it's a, in a sense, a perfect developmental hint um, because, uh, you know, sometimes to break out of your 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 current prison developmental prison um you you need to invent new action and uh you know i i remember a time when i was just um uh, nothing was solving the problem i had with this person and i finally remembered this this uh, advice and i but i had no idea why i should be angry in fact i I thought I was going to completely alienate this person if I got angry. Um, but I just started to get angry without knowing what I was going to say. I just started to roar at the other person. And then words formed in my mouth without my cognitive uh, supervision. <laughs> and um, I expressed how much I loved the person and how... how um, uh, uh, I didn't feel as though she um, received my love or appreciated my love. or um, And immediately uh, the uh, dynamics were completely switched and uh, we came out of the argumentative mode and into a much softer and um, loving mode. Um, and you know, I was just astonished at what it did, but it, it, I was able to experiment with getting angry in, in important organizational situations after that. And perhaps because I'm so leery of getting angry, uh, the times when I have gotten angry ha have been um, obviously developmentally useful, both to me and to the, um, to the other person or the organizational situation. So, um, I guess that wandered from saying that somebody needs a lot of support. Uh, well, I guess I got support from my friend who told me to do the last thing I would ever think of doing. Yeah. And what I like about that is it's a kind of generative uh, invitation or generative ontology, you know, like to do the opposite of what you might do. It's not, it's not a prescription or, I mean, it could become a prescription, couldn't it? But uh, in that case, it was it was more of an invitation, and you you know you didn't know what was going to happen, but you tried it out, and um, you know that's where I think about um, you know like it, 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 sometimes uh, the critique can be that these stages then become stereotypes, which are simplistic, and um, maybe. Um, you know, it reduces the opportunity for a diversity of cognition or thinking. Mm -hmm. And even that uh, people maybe try to game the the tests, you know, and they kind of know the answers. And um, there's a critique there. But I also, you know, what you were sharing, I was like, and yeah, it can be. I found sometimes like locating myself, you know, I'm doing that in inverted commas. 
and 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 kind of hearing about the next stage can actually help open up new possibilities it can open up distinctions and ways of seeing things which are empowering which are generative as well so i see that both ways and um, yeah well it definitely yeah. can they can be reduced to stereotypes um, and that's in a way um, a danger with almost any um, kind of knowledge that begins to arise in the social situation at first is full of new life uh, black lives matter um, uh, and then it gets reduced to a to a slogan over a period of years um, uh, and rather than developed uh, in into a meaningful social movement. Um, I'm not saying that Black Lives Matter hasn't developed into a meaningful social movement. I think it, to a certain degree it has. Uh, Me Too uh, would be an, a, a kind of example that has disappointed me because it seems to me that the first step, yes, is for women to be able to say how they have been mistreated by men um, but, you know, then the next step ought to be, uh, okay, men, uh, what do you need to learn uh, in order not to mistreat women? Well, that immediately gets characterized as political correctness, um, and uh, it's been hard for that octave of development to, to move ahead to the point where you have loving mutual relationships rather than hateful unilateral uh, force. Um, and uh, we need we need to get the men more involved. Um, and yeah, self examination. Um, so that's that's uh, you know that's been the women's movement back in the seventies um, went into consciousness raising groups with one another, and they actually helped one another develop uh, beyond a kind of a diplomat. Uh, agree, you know, agreeableness uh, to the existing social uh, uh, norms to to creating new norms. Um, once again, it would have been helpful if the men developed a men's liberation movement at that time. And there were there were various men's group and men's uh, men's movements, but they didn't go. They didn't reach a very large uh, percentage of the population not as large as the women's group reached. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The value in, um, I think, you know, I'm hearing in this the, the the value in, again, when things are born out of a genuine evolution, an emergence of something important in response to attention, and then they become reified, you know, and simplified, and they lose that kind of attunement and relationship you know, and then people become other. The thing becomes this fixed thing, and um, and and uh, I've got some other questions I want to make sure I ask you before you know we get to our time, because mm -hmm. you talked before about this post-cognitive consciousness, and I um, um, I know that you wrote about that in the in your response. You know that one of the critiques was that um, um, these theories can or people can conflate complexity of thinking with presence of embodied awareness and post-cognitive consciousness. And actually, I wondered if you could say more about how you see that critique. What, what do you mean by presence of embodied awareness? And we've been speaking about post-cognitive consciousness. Um, 
Yeah, because in one way, it seems like you're saying earlier that, oh, yeah, this this post-cognitive consciousness is actually, uh, it is conducive to becoming more attuned, perhaps more complex. But the critique is saying that it conflates the two. Could you say something more about this point? Hmm. Can I read it from the paper that you wrote? Okay, sure. That, maybe that actually helps. Snowden's critique. Oh, yeah. Snowden's critique of adult development theory is conflating complexity of thinking with presence of embodied awareness and post-cognitive consciousness is widely and importantly valid. Um, uniquely, though, the CDA, CDAI approach posits four distinct but intertwined ontological territories of experience. Uh, I think we talked about this before, didn't we? Like post-cognitive consciousness, mind, embodied awareness, and the material world. Uh, to be aware in the moment of how one's own and others' strategy and practice are affecting the situation requires cultivating bare attention of post-cognitive consciousness. A person continually encounters this challenge and the oscillation between the transforming and alchemical action logic. Does that kind of... Uh, bring up more stuff. We can always move on from that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I, you know, there are some versions of um, developmental theory, um, mostly associated with Michael Commons, who that focus um, entirely, it seems to me, on um, mental development and mental uh, complexity whereas I'm talking about a post-mental complexity. Um, so, you know, can the ability to be aware of what's going on in the moment, in this situation, in myself, uh, in the particular persons I'm dealing with, in the umbrella institutional setting that we are in, um, and not just, not just have thoughts uh, about them, but... Um, uh, to uh, accept signals that one perhaps can't even turn into language immediately, like the example I gave of starting to um, shout in anger without knowing what I was going to say. I mean, one of the things that I have learned um, is uh, the, that I don't have to know what I'm going to say before I start speaking. In fact, most of us don't. <laughs> we just take it for granted that we're going to be uh, somewhat coherent in what we're saying. But to actually live with the awareness that um, I don't know what I'm going to say next um, uh, can be difficult. And of course, many of us are very busy in our minds um, trying to diagnose uh, the situation we are in. Um, without reference to uh, how we are acting um, in the moment and uh, without reference to a quality of consciousness that uh, isn't um, that that goes beyond my body that that actually includes the situation I'm not thinking about the situation but I'm aware of the situation um, and uh, the you know Western social science doesn't deal with that. Uh, it doesn't deal with first person or second person knowledge, really. It doesn't deal with what is the kind of knowledge that you're generating when you intervene in, in a particular moment. 
It's very good at knowledge that's created over time and analyzed after the fact. Um, but what about um, the, the huge realm of knowledge that can be known in the moment, um, can be tested for um, with, in a situation which is not going to get you third new third-person knowledge right away, probably, but it may get you extremely important first and second-person knowledge right away, which may be all that's needed in, in the situation. What comes up for me is is like something I've been thinking around. And again, you know, I'm aware like there's something implicit here in what I want to say. It's not formulated. It's actually emerging as I'm in relationship to you and we engage and I'm speaking now. And it's but it's maybe this points to some of the critiques. Again, I'll try and keep weaving those in, you know, like uh Nora Bateson has been kind of um, you know, and again, I'll just because of time, I'm just gonna throw in some like, you know, even she she's been kind of looking at this from her perspective saying have we have we uh held uh what is the self basically and what what is the starting place of some of these theories and what they hold the self to be perhaps it points to that that um maybe it's focused on the individual too much but you know what where is the boundary of the self how how can we actually begin to define what that is and you know how, how much has that emerged out of kind of european american thinking and and what other ways of of um, thinking might exist around the world that that have not been fully included inside? I'm going to yeah bring in a few people's perspectives here. So um, you know, like for example, uh, more animistic ways of seeing, which have been I think when I've looked into it, more the predominant ways of uh, uh, human beings have related to the world, not as it dead in a matter, but as as a living you know, things are living and I'm made of my relationships to those things. So, um, you know, people like Spring Cheng of them came in and said, you know, hey, these theories aren't honoring the the great wisdom inside of uh, these, what we would call earlier stages of development, which, you know, from an um, European American perspective, it's so easy to say lower is worse, higher is better. There's just these implicit biases but you know the the incredible complexity of um intelligence in some of these you know what are clusters like lower levels of you know like you know uh, like indigenous intelligence in jungles you know to navigate and commune and relate incredibly sophisticated um and and so um yeah i've just been thinking about therefore yeah what uh, how are these how are we limited by how we hold what the self is, you know? And that, um, yeah, there's there's mo other modes of knowing and perceiving and, and intelligence that are actually essential and that, that can inform us in the moment, such as awareness itself, you know? Well, These, right. Yeah. yeah no, um, well, I think um, that... Um, First of all, that the, the self changes in nature through development. I mean, each action logic represents uh, a different way of being a self. And as one moves uh, to the later action logics, the self is more and more inclusive of uh, the outside world and the inside world. Um, and I think the... Um, the the uh, early cultures put a greater emphasis 
on uh, knowledge in practice, uh, on the practice level of the ontological spectrum, and on the post-cognitive consciousness. So, so in the West, we have focused primarily on mind and matter, and there's these two other equally significant um, ontological territories uh, that I think were more emphasized um, in indigenous cultures. Uh, so, um, and the movement toward alchemical is a movement beyond any fixed state of self. Uh, the last fixed self state, and it's quite a fluid one, is the transforming action logic. But the um, the alchemical action logic, it really relates very, very strongly to um, indigenous forms of consciousness and awareness. Uh, so I do think um, that we need to transcend the Western emphasis uh, on the expert and achiever stages, which have to do with manipulating the outside world. Um, and um, and I think the my hope is that the uh, notion of a fourfold monism um, of ontological fourfold equality among these four uh, territories of experience uh, is is a way of moving back toward a more inclusive way of knowing and doing. I don't know. Yeah, no, because I, I yeah I love that because it, it it feels it fits in with the transition we're in i mean you know what is the transition we're in it's hard to to define it you know but something's going on but at least people are talking about meaning a lot and it does seem to me in my personal experience um there's there's um a disconnection from experience that you know, might be emphasized in some of these theories where, where how some people hold it, yeah? Not in the way you just described it. That's very different. But, you know, it's almost like that th th um, we, we, we grow in maturity and then uh, we become more and more sophisticated and abstracted in our thinking, you know? But actually in that abstraction, there's a disconnection from the immediacy of our experience and, and nature and others, you know? Um, yeah. You know, we, we, you know, Gaia, we synthesize certainly the whole, you know, uh, world in, in the, this frame of the, of Gaia, you know, which symbolizes so much for us, but does that, does that term actually bring, bring us closer to experience in a way that's meaningful and fulfilling and actually allows us to solve some of these crises and challenges we face? I'm not sure, you know, maybe, so, so I think I'm encouraged when I hear you speak about these four domains and and the balancing out of them because it does feel like, uh, yeah, maybe there's different vectors uh, that we can we can kind of bring in that will bring more meaning and 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 creative collaborative solutions and mutual power. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And feel free to kind of just challenge what I said. You know, it's just kind of a me waxing lyrical. <laughs> um, or tell me how amazing it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh! Now I feel I'm being forced into saying. No, I'm, I'm just uh, playing around now. I'm just playing around. <laughs>
Well, you know, I, feel free to respond to what I said. Um, you know, there's, there's like, we've got a few minutes left, and I just wonder if there's anything you want to share that we haven't spoken about. I, I just, you know, I'm really appreciating your willingness to just explore some of these things and, you know, share your experience. Yeah. Well, I think I, I want to say um, uh, something that has uh, been a little bit obvious in our conversation. Um which is that I'm starting to lose it mentally. Um, I lose my place in conversations uh, from time to time, and it's pretty easy to remind me where I was. And I'm, um, uh, I don't, I don't feel fundamentally embarrassed about it, but it um, is obviously a little strange for uh, an audience. There'll probably come a time when when I'll need to judge that um, I can't be really as of much help if I'm um, if I'm forgetting what's going on all the time. It also um, makes me feel I, I'm sort of constantly questioning myself uh, whether I am providing any value in what I'm saying. There's a sort of self-doubt um, at the same time as a uh, a desire not to get embarrassed about it. Um, so I just uh, want to let your listeners know that um, uh, this, I'm there. And so, so maybe to link it to what we have been talking about, um, you know, the question of what I'm trying to do moment to moment, this idea of reconnecting with all four territories at once, um, is a practice that has become even more uh, important to me and more central to me. Um, I feel like I'm doing the right thing when I try to be more aware of the four territories at once. Um, and uh, so I'm glad we got to that point in the conversation uh, of sharing more about those. Um, I suppose um, it also is connected to the increasingly important question about death and what it means. It's a question that I have um, actually thought I have been holding my whole life and with a kind of, um, uh, well, first of all, not a fear of death. Um, uh, there's obviously something transformational that happens at death. And in a way, all the action logic transformations in life are many life and death experiences uh, to go through more of those action logic transformations may prepare one for the ultimate one uh, of facing our own death uh, and um, being, you know, being um, facing our death in an inquiring manner. Um, and Socrates uh, did that. Um, and other people we can uh, point to uh, have, you know, found uh, a way to die that um, uh, that it dignifies them. Um, death with dignity seems to me to be an incredibly important slogan um, for uh, our global civilization. Um, so I find that. Um, you know, what does it mean now in this latest stage where I'm sort of 
beginning to lose my mind uh, to dementia. How can my preparation for death um, be even stronger? Mm. And, you know, what does it really mean? So. Um, mm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really touched by what you share, you know, uh, the vulnerability uh, of your sharing and um, the way you speak about it. And um, yeah, and, and this, this notion of death, yeah. Um, of uh yes we individually yeah we're gonna we're gonna die you know but it, it yeah it does feel collect collectively right now uh perhaps we're facing deaths you know collective deaths in all forms and shapes from the climate to certain ways we've seen who we are and what the world is and how we can live together and um yeah, you know, for me, you're you're embodying something important, you know, in in this whole conversation today. Just the the humility and uh, your sincerity around um, this work, and so I just want to appreciate you, you know, and okay. yeah, offer my love in this moment to you. Mm. 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 Well, that that touches me in turn, and I really appreciate the quality of your questioning during this session and i uh, really um, appreciated being able to be with you hmm. Do, would you like to uh, point people in any direction you know to your work or to the work of others in this conversation i'm sure they would love to explore more yeah well I mean, my my uh, numbskull in the theater of inquiry book, whose subtitle is Transforming Self, Friends, Organizations, uh, and Social Science, um, it does try to bring together everything I've done in a, the main part of the book is a memoir, um, but it tries to show how I eventually discovered that I myself seem to be going through these uh, action logics. Um, so it's a sort of an easy introduction to them uh, through through personal stories. Um, but it also includes a number of appendices, which I hope um, give a sense of the overall philosophy that um, develops from the four territories of experience. Experience, <laughs> not idea, but experience. Um, uh, so that book is, is probably... Uh, the best way um and it tells um well the story uh, of the death of my grandmother which is a very very important um moment in my life um and then it also describes the death of a man named minor white who was one of the leading photographers in the mid-century mid-20th century and who became a pal of mine in the spiritual work that we were both in together and his death, um, I give uh, its own, not exactly chapter, but intermission or something uh, for. So, um, so there are, you know, reflections about death and how to approach death uh, in, in that book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, yeah, then I just want to say thanks again and um really happy to be sharing this and uh 
Yeah, just uh, go well, go well. All right, you too. Um, and uh, and I hope this is, has been of some help to the people who may listen in. <laughs> yeah. Take care, Joel. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Uh, I'm sure it will be. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.